0: Good morning, everybody. Um, I would like to welcome you to uh, the Bruegel annual meeting, uh, which starts today, and which starts with energy and climate. It's the first time we ever started with energy and climate. And I think that's telling you something about the uh, the importance of this uh, area, not only in the in the Bruegel research, but also in, uh, in the politics, uh, European and global economic politics, it has. Um, We have seen outside a number of iconic examples of the fossil fuel era, and um, we have also seen last year the Paris Agreement, which had as one of their purposes to bring many more of those fossil fuels cars into the museum. So um, we are now um, wanting to discuss the issue of um, climate change or uh, climate policies, as well as European energy policies. And I have here an excellent panel, so I would not like to uh, to spend too many words uh, in introducing them because um, they should be well known. And um, I would like to directly start. We didn't prepare presentations or long long speeches at the beginning, um, but more with a conversation. And my first question for the conversation would would go to uh, Connie Hedegaard, the um, former commissioner for climate action. We have seen that um, the EU uh, EU, uh, has not. um, The the current pledges from Paris are unlikely to meet the the two-degree, let alone the uh, the one and a half-degree target. So, in a sense, should the EU try to uh, to do more and push for the one and a half-degree target? Is the current pledges that the EU uh, has done in Paris enough? And um, what is it in in the trajectory that we had in the the past with the 2020 policies that you have been responsible for? Is that the right trajectory or do we need to step it up even further?
1: Okay, thank you very much. Good morning. Uh, I would say I would be happy if Europe actually delivered on the 2030 targets that we adopted back in uh, October 2014. Because if we do that, then we are on the right trajectory. And and I acknowledge very well that we could discuss, should we go even further? But honestly, when we are still way behind actually delivering on, on that, I think that is where the focus should be. And now today, the topic is energy and climate. And obviously, that is totally interlinked also on a region, in a region where we are heavily dependent on imported energy. So I think we have a historic chance now to try and link climate and energy, and the energy systems and all the things that I know that you will come back to throughout the discussion, but we could link it to something more, because now in the post-Brexit era, Europe is looking for sort of a, a vision that people can relate to. And I think that in the climate field, the energy field, There is a topic where people, no matter what they think else of Europe, they can see that it makes sense to work on these. And just the final thing, energy is crucial, but now you mentioned the cars. What is needed in order for Europe to deliver on the 2030 target, that we should reduce our emissions with at least 40% by 2030, then it will not be enough just to look at energy. Then we get to the real difficult sectors. Buildings, even worse, agriculture, even more difficult, transport. So if we could set ourselves, put ourselves on the right track for these sectors, and that is actually what the burden-sharing discussion right now is is all about. Which countries should deliver how much? And all the member states can only deliver on this if they actually also put up some severe strategies for agriculture, buildings, and um, transport, in other words, the non-ETS sector. So now it's where it gets really complicated, also with technology, but also because we're getting closer to the citizens. So uh, instead of now discussing, should we add up on these targets, I think our main focus should be on delivering and implementing on the targets we have already set.
0: um, Brigitte, might I uh, turn to you? Um you're the uh, Secretary General of the Mercator Center for uh, Climate Change in Berlin. Um, do you think that the, uh, that the targets that we are uh, currently having in the EU are enough? Should the EU do more or should the EU push others to do more?
2: Yeah, thank you very much uh, for the invitation and the opportunity here to speak. So first of all, I would agree with um, much of what you said, uh, Connie Hedegaard. I would like to add three different points or three more points. So first one is... Um, If we see the Paris Agreement, and perhaps you have noticed over the weekend that the U.S. and China, they have ratified the Paris Agreement. Europe has not. So Europe has not delivered, and why is this? Because Europe um, um, is is not making progress in the effort sharing in the non-ETS sector, so there are tensions between the member states, so we have to do our homework there. Um, Then you asked about the targets. Um, I think... So it is worthwhile to think of a kind of visionary target in that sense that Paris means in the end that we have to come to zero emissions at some point in time and zero emissions it's much more different than saying well we want to reduce 80 to 95 percent by 2050 what is ambitious very ambitious and I agree that we have to deliver that but I think that everybody every single industry is hiding in this 5 to 15 percent and they say well the other sectors have to do the rest so um, and I think this would change if we we would focus on zero emissions, be it in 2070 or whatever. But it, it changes the debate; could change the debate. Um, and the third point is, um, and uh, that is what Connie Hedegaard said: delivering and implementing. So I think we have to use or Im- um, implement substantive, substantive um, instruments. I mean. For the power sector, we have the ETS, the Emissions Trading Scheme. But in the end, we are below 4, have a price of of less than 4 euro per tons of carbon. That is nothing. It's it's more a joke. But we have to to reform the EU ETS, Uh, there are different proposals, and we have to focus also on other sectors you mentioned it before. So, I mean, we, we see the transport industry uh, sitting outside there and also the transport industry and also the other industries have to deliver to, to to substantiate Paris, not only in terms of big, nice events with nice photo shots, but also with um, perhaps some different targets, but uh, delivering and on, on implementation and on policies.
0: Simon. Um. Um, yeah simone you are um, the uh, vice president uh, of nl and uh, and president of um, the italian energy association and um, as an industry speaker you're one of the uh, from the most progressive uh, energy companies and from the most progressive energy sector the electricity sector that has delivered most in terms of decarbonization do you need Stronger targets in order to to justify your investments, or are the current targets enough to to make your your business run?
3: Well, that's a good question, and probably we would need more time than the first short answer. But we will touch several issues during the 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 progressing with the conversation. Well, I think that there's a great passion for targets. That's that's a very European case, and it's important because when we want to we want to implement an investment plan, and we need we need a direction, and uh, and uh, probably uh, targets are the only well, probably one of the ways in order to provide a direction to investors because you need you need in some way some kind of long t- or long term uh, uh, view of what may happen in your system, and th- that's the reason why, for example, as a company and also as a system of companies, uh, we um, uh, we uh, we had a positive. Uh, evaluation of the 2030 targets, because, uh, because uh, you, need, you need a target on the long term. That's So 2020 is too, sh- too short. Uh, and probably if you ask me specifically, do you believe that 2030, the targets put in the 2030 package, for example, for renewable are ambitious enough, I would say, well, it's quite business as usual. Probably you, you, we could put a, 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 more ambitious, a more ambitious target. But I don't believe that the point of the target is really the, the crucial one. Because, I, I, I say, the direction is important, but the tools are much more important. Huh? So, so the problem is that we are investing all around the world as a company. Uh, we are probably, we have the, the most ambitious renewable pipeline in the world. And, uh, and uh, the, 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 the amount of investment, in you know, our investment plan, which will be dedicated to Europe, is a, is a very little part of this investment plan. No? And I think there are two major reasons. The first one, which is an, a, a clear region, it's much, it's, it's much easier to invest in countries and economies where you need more energy in order to sustain the industrial and economic growth, than to invest in a, in a region like, such as Europe, where you have a, largely a problem of overcapacity. No? And then we come to the second problem, that it's, it's a, how progressive is the electricity industry. I think quite a lot, but this is a, you need some specificity on that. But the second problem is that in many cases in Europe you don't have the right instrument. So I think, for example, that the fact of having, for the first uh, for the first period of of of, of, of let me say of boom of renewable investments in Europe, you know, uh, after the 2020 package, basically that they not not very well. And unfortunately, the Commission didn't succeed in the attempt to create a common framework of regulatory. Uh, schemes around Europe in order to harmonize the system in Europe. This undermined efficiency efficient the mechanism. We spent much more than what we could have spent in Europe, and this is one of the reasons of the of the reduction in investment today. Is because many countries, you know, the most uh, let's say renewable, enthusiast countries, basically got uh, got out of money. For for, for uh, my country is one of one example of that. The second po- mm, point, and and I will uh, uh, I will uh, elaborate later eventually on that is. Uh, is that that energy transition is a fact is a fact for the sector, but it's also a fact for the energy companies? So when you ask me uh, as a chairman of, a, a, of an enterprise association, of course you have to manage a transition because the transition is not you know it's not a fight between the good and the heavy it's not a fight between the bad people, without companies, and fantastic people with new technologies. It's, 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 there are companies which have to manage a transition between a technology and another as we have seen in other sectors, and this has to be done. An efficient way with with, uh, reasonably consistent tools and uh, take into account that the transition is time and it's it's an appropriate tool to manage it. But we may elaborate
0: a little bit better on that. Thank you, uh, Simone. Um, I would like to uh, to turn to Laszlo, who is the uh, chief economist of the International Energy Agency. And I would like to uh, to emphasize the international and ask you kind of what is Europe's efforts in, in global perspective?
4: Well, the, uh, Europe was the frontrunner front runner uh, of climate policy, and Europe was the front runner uh, of uh, renewable investment up until a couple of years ago. Uh, It is still a front-runner in some aspects, so for example, European system operators uh, are still regarded as the best practice in terms of integrating high shares of wind and solar into the power system. So there's a very important innovation ongoing largely by the European electricity industry in the software of the clean energy system, better forecasting of wind and solar, real-time monitoring of the electricity network, uh, uh, the systematic application of big data uh, into uh, into power system operation. Now this is very important, and there and there Europe can rightly be proud uh, of of its achievements. However, in terms of the in terms of the ramp up uh, of uh, in terms of the ramp up of wind and solar, uh, the two most important low carbon technologies, uh, Europe now has a, I would say a respectable bronze medal uh, after China and the United States, uh, but you know very very far from the Olympic championship. Uh, so the uh, so, you know the notion uh, you know the notion that europe is still a frontrunner and and, and I, I come to Brussels several times a year uh, and uh, here in the city of Brussels you can still go to a run table where people will talk about that there is a risk that europe might start to lose its leadership in clean energy I mean that leadership was lost three years ago uh, uh, the uh, so that's uh, uh, that's no longer a risk that that happened and I also have to say that in the Uh, In terms of the overarching policy design of how you design policies for renewable investment, I have to say that if I had to write a a top list of the most intelligent, best designed renewable investment policies, uh, my top list would be Mexico, Brazil, South Africa, uh, uh, Chile probably would make it uh, to the list uh, as well, I'm not sure I would list any European country in the top five uh, in terms of how intelligently de- de- uh, s- designed uh, the renewable investment scheme. Uh, you, you see some, some really, really eye catching numbers, some of them from, from NL, uh, so of how incredibly cheap renewables can be. Now, of course, of course, part of that is the natural resources. The sunshine of the Atacama Desert or the wind of the Atlantic coast of Brazil, which are incredibly good natural resources. But this is not only the natural resources. It is only the renewable investment is still heavily policy dependent. We still see cases uh, United Kingdom, which is an extremely windy country, but a policy change could have a major impact on onshore wind investment in the United Kingdom or the state of Nevada in the United States is the most sunny place in planet Earth, but a really technical regulatory change had a major impact on solar investment. So the policy design clear, clearly matters. Uh, and I would say that this is something where Europe should really improve because another thing that I found very interesting is that there was this very high level, very emotional debate of whether it should be 40%, 37%, 43%, And there was very, very little debate on how smart the pathway should be. Now, our our analysis very clearly shows that the difference between the social cost of achieving a 40% or a 45% reduction in 2030 is much, much smaller uh, than the difference of achieving 40% with a smart integrated policy design or a segmented inefficient policy design. So what really, uh, I think think the European conversation should switch into optimizing the pathway rather than uh, one magic number.
0: I would would like to uh, to come back to that because I wonder a bit, you you described and uh, and all of you described um, reaching decarbonization and renewable targets. And I'm a bit kind of wondering whether that's the stage, at which we are at so is it really now about massive deployment of renewables we have seen that the uh, us for example started a bit later in deploying renewables now they spent quite a lot of money in innovation and research in uh, in different technology fields so is not the thing that europe could do best more to invest in research development innovation to uh, Gain industrial leadership in new emerging low-carbon technologies, instead of replacing existing medium-carbon technologies like gas turbines by uh, by, uh, by wind turbines and kind of paying double for that.
4: Uh, I think we have to make a distinction uh, between power generation and some other sectors uh, of the uh, some other sectors of this, uh, the the uh, energy system. I think in power generation. I think the current generation of wind turbines and solar panels are good enough, and of course, it is always it is always desirable to have innovation. It's nice to have more efficient solar panels. It's nice to have uh, uh, better wind turbines. But the the current generation of wind and solar technology is ready to go uh, to a really really large scale deployment. So there, I think with wind and solar, the key uh, the key issue is twofold. One. Maintaining the investment momentum because we are talking about really really large-scale deployment and the second is the effective integration now For the effective integration you do need innovation But some of that innovation is not physical technologies again There's a lot of talk about electricity storage and it is it is desirable to have electricity storage But all the modeling uh, analysis shows that it is possible to integrate large quantities of wind and solar without any magic technology uh, on electricity storage if you do it smartly. So a lot of the innovation has to be regulatory innovation, pro- uh, policy innovation, uh, system operation innovation. Now on other sectors of the energy uh, system, things like low carbon heavy duty transport or low carbon plastics production, some low carbon petrochemicals technology. There you do need fundamental innovation and there you need, uh, you need real technology breakthroughs.
1: Can, can I add to that? Because I think that several of you mentioned, you did, and you also did, sort of, yeah, it was easier to go to other markets than in, in Europe. And, and obviously, in many ways, it's easier to be, say, China in this, because you have sort of to install new energy capacity, whereas in Europe we have to replace old energy capacity. It's much more complex, and that requires policy and that requires planning. And it sounds very simple, but we are living in a time where somehow there is this, if not animosity, but skepticism, do we really need politics here? And we have some overall targets, but we are not fast enough at implementing things in Europe. Take the Juncker plan. Huge investments there sort of earmarked for infrastructure, also in the energy sector. But we need to be faster at rolling out at the big scale these kind of things. We've been talking about interconnectors, for instance, in Europe for many years. And if we had this old target of 10%. It doesn't work. Then we only have 2% interconnectors of energy uh, beyond uh, national borders. What do we do? We increase the interconnectors' targets to 15%, which, of course, in itself guarantees nothing. I mean, we must be much more consistent in getting action to scale and sink energy across borders. And and I think that we have not lost our front-runner position yet, but I would agree that it can be lost extremely fast if Europe do not get its act together in these areas. And one way also to, to get this act together would also be to get the pricing right. We've been discussing that and maybe we'll come back to that. But I would also say, in line with what Birgit Knopf was saying about zero emission or a low carbon or whatever we call it, it should be embedded in all the policy making that when we decide whether to do A or B, not just to think for the 2030 horizon, but to think for the total decarbonisation horizon, And if that really informed all finance ministries and all economic services we would often come to other conclusions that if you're only thinking for 2020 or 2030 it would be other kind of choices that would end up being the most cost efficient uh, pathway to, to follow.
3: May I make a comment on the on the technology point. I mean, I'm a physics physicist by background, so I would never say that that, that 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 we don't need the research and development on this field. But I think there is a little bit more, uh, too much emphasis on that. In the sense that uh, if you look at the, uh, it's it's true what Slavko said. It's perfectly true. If you, if you look around the world, many policies uh, are probably uh, probably much more coherent and stable and investment and uh, investment prone than, than the European ones. But if you look at the uh, best example of uh, Energy, especially electricity technology in place, in action. The 95% of example will be in Europe. We overspend for that, probably, yes. But uh, but it's clear, I mean, we, we operate in 35, 30, 40 countries around the world. It's clear that if you look at the renewable integration into the grid, in the grid interfunctionality, in, in the digitalization of distributed, distributed grid, in distributed generation, in energy efficiency, it, it's clear that, uh, that we have by far in Europe the best and most massive uh, presence of uh, best examples worldwide. So what we lack, and uh, in this case, we may go back to the, to the, to the title of this, of this roundtable, is, uh, is, uh, is uh, something which should be intimately connected to the energy union vision. We lack the ability to take the best examples we have and to make them the background for the system. And this is, I think, in terms of policy, the real challenge for Europe, for the governments, and for the Commission. Because uh, uh, going back to technology, many of the technologies we need to drastically improve the quality of our uh, energy systems are there. Of course, probably we need, we are still waiting for the breakthrough in in energy storage, for example, especially for the small-scale batteries. Sure, we will need some more investment. But I'm not really sure that the money, for this kind of research should be put massively by the public universities so the, 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 the most the, the, the largest company in the world investing a lot of that that's the same on photovoltaic panel that's the same in in in, in, order, uh, in, order, in, order in many software uh, uh, of software or, or so hardware but i mean related to ict application on on the, on the on the on the energy sector application which are ready to be put in place, there are many examples. The problem is to go from the example to the to the to the general application and I think this is much more a matter of policies or integration of uh, uh, of of ambition also of culture in terms of coming pushing the companies especially in countries which tend to be a little bit more defensive where companies tend to be a little bit smaller than with with uh, a, 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 a lower level of investment capabilities that the future has to be has to be has to be uh, reached today because the future is there and is there in terms of technology. There is a big big gap between what may be done, what could be done, and what is uh, the average uh, quality of our system.
0: So uh, we talked a bit about uh, about electricity and, and Laszlo mentioned the point that there are other sectors that need to uh, need to be decarbonized where we are much further from the uh, from the frontier or from where we need to go and um, uh, we didn't talk so much about transport even so uh, it's very close here and we didn't talk so much about heating and cooling. Um, so I'm wondering a bit in terms of what is called burden sharing between the different sectors for decarbonization. Does it? Really makes sense to uh, to again replace existing, still not uh, um, electricity infrastructure that has not reached the end of its economic lifetime, say 100 gigawatts of gas-fired power plants in Europe by renewables, while at the same time we are still building uh, factories that produce fossil fuel cars. We are still. Um, uh, constructing houses that are kind of consuming too many uh, fossil fuels so should we not kind of shift the emphasis in the uh, in the whole story from the from the rather technologically easy thing which might be costly if we do it ad hoc towards more the long term vision in uh, in the other sectors that we also need to decarbonize by 2050 uh, Brigitte Yeah
2: so in, in my opinion, the sectors will be more and more interlinked in the future and I think what we will see is in a kind of electrification of, of different sectors and the first one I see is, is the transport sector quite clearly. Um, but. To see that, I think we, we need different instruments in the transport sector. I mean, we have come really to an end with regulation, not only because of the Volkswagen scandal, but also because of the kind of machinery, so so of, of the technique. So, But if we um, had a, a price signal, for example, in the transport sector, we would see an innovation in terms of, of batteries, of electric vehicles, and so on. And then we have the cross link to the um, electricity system. and. So, on my opinion, this is um, this is important to to think more um, the sectors more out of the box and more in the connection.
4: Yes. Uh, I think if you take the other other sectors, I'm I'm not optimistic about bioenergy. I think if you if you stre- if you scratch the surface, there are some really ugly questions emerging about the sustainability uh, of biofuel uh, production. Uh, and if you if you are honest uh, about those ugly questions. Then, both for the, so for some parts of the transport sector and large parts of buildings and industry, our best bet is to have uh, abundant low-carbon electricity going into those sectors. Uh, so the uh electric cars have a have a significant potential now they 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 still need to improve their cost efficiency there still need to be a big infrastructure development for recharging networks uh, to to address the range anxiety uh, so Uh, But I'm beginning to think uh, that uh, storage facilities which have four wheels, uh, named electric cars, uh, will play a significantly bigger role in the electricity system than stationary uh, storage capacities, if they reach uh, a critical penetration. Uh, And also for the building sector, I mean, electric heat pumps are a well understood uh, technology, uh, but of course in the case of electric heat pumps, I mean, last year, something like 700,000 uh, were deployed in Europe, uh, and there are 140 million gas boilers, so with this speed, it would take 200 years uh, to decarbonize the European building sector, uh, and that's a bit, uh, so that's a bit slow. Uh, so there, uh, there again, I, I don't see a major technological problem with electric, uh, with electric heat pumps, but I see a major problem uh, in the weakness of the building sector-related policies.
0: May I, may I just kind of push you a bit on uh, on that. My, my question was essentially about replacement of things that are still in their economic lifetime versus kind of following the investment cycle in uh, in other sectors. So it seems to me that we are in the electricity sector kind of pushing out things that have not reached the end of their economic lifetime, which is costly, while in other sectors we are still building and locking in High-carbon uh, investments for 40 years, like in the automotive industry.
4: Well, the thing the thing that the, the 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 current, I mean, the current situation when you have uh, uh, five years old uh, high-efficiency combined cycle gas turbines being mothballed, while 40 years old, half-broken coal-fired plants happily operating and belching carbon dioxide to the air, the, I mean, this is clearly a policy failure. Uh, this is uh, th- this is a, a highly undesirable side effect uh, of not having an appropriate carbon price, uh, uh, and this is something that should be addressed. Uh, uh, but uh, the uh, you know the this this slight increase uh, of European coal consumption in the uh, in the years 2011 to 2013, 2014. I mean that was the that was the last hurrah. Uh, the uh, in the next uh, decade, we estimate that around 70 gigawatt of coal plants will be decommissioned in Europe uh, almost irrespective of the strengthening of climate policy because these are 40 50 years old power plants, a lot of them in Central Eastern Europe operating with really outdated technologies. Uh, the, uh, and as you as you squeeze uh, those coal plants out from the system, there you know if you have a I would say if you have a combination, of expensive gas, energy security concerns, and a weak climate policy, a lot of those plants would be replaced by new coal plants. And then you lock in the problem for another several decades. Uh, uh, it is a very interesting question and a very important question, how do you replace those old coal fleet? And this is also, this is a major opportunity, but also a major potential threat uh, if it's not done well.
1: No, but now it has actually been said very clearly by Laszlo, because I think it's a false assumption as if somebody deliberately wants to squeeze out relatively new gas-fired plants as part of an overall strategy, but it's more what happens when the price signal is not working. Uh, And that is why it is such a big mistake when people are afraid of making the necessary reform of the ETS. Because we need that price signal exactly in order to avoid wrong decisions and decisions that really create problems, as we have seen in Germany, for instance, uh, for the whole energy market. So I think that really to get it right on the ETS is still key. Um, And and then I think what we should learn from that is exactly the point to avoid lock-in we need to have long-term planning and, and a long-time horizon. And, and that is the problem now, that was the problem with the German Energiewende. It took too long to get it up, running and to get the infrastructure sort of uh, answer to the political targets you had. And that is what we should be learning from in, uh, in Europe. And then I think we can do a cost-efficient thing. But I think there's still too much national energy policy thinking in Europe. And that is something that we could really use the crisis over, over Brexit and many other things to say now we must identify some few areas where it's visible to most citizens that there is added value in working together in Europe. And I really think what we are discussing here, that is something that politicians, decision-makers, people in business and citizens could really see as, oh that is what Europe is all about. So I think that should be part of the new narrative that some people are trying to identify for the post-Brexit era. Uh,
3: absolutely, 100% uh, in agreement with that. First, uh, on the phase out and the face question. First, we need, we need a long-term policy just to make clear to everybody, well, the mix will go during the next 15 years. Second, we need we need a, 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 an ETS properly working because that's a, that's the best possible signals to shut down plants that have to be shut down. Third, we have to uh, manage the the progressive shutdown of of, of plants which are not at the end of their life. This is a very important point because we don't need it's not very easy to understand today how much backup uh, capacity we need today in order to manage to manage uh, uh, the, the, uh, a large penetration level of penetration for renewables. We we have seen the case in Italy we, that, that's a very uh, special geography, but that, that's very hard to define if what we need is the the, the conventional 15% of, of capacity reserve, we need 20, 25, that depends very much on the specific zone and so on and so forth. And we do believe that what, what commissions trying to do, uh, trying to have a not-ideological approach, for example, to capacity remuneration mechanisms are part of the story, what we need is a um Connie Ednaga mentioned the problem of long term. We need long long term visibility and probably long-term contractualization of all these plants will be the best way to understand if you need this plant or you don't need this plant. If you try to buy capacity on a long term ag- basis, and and you will understand very well if your capacity in ten years' time will be needed or not, and then you will understand if you have to shut down it. And then we we'll probably we have also to introduce some specific mechanisms to account for, for, the, 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 for helping these plants to go out of the market. Uh, just going back to, the, to, to your point uh, uh, for a second on, on mobility. Uh, two weeks ago, we launched in, a, in the Denmark, a country that you know very well, uh, a project which I believe is the first project of this kind. Uh, this is a commercial project for uh, basically what we call vehicle to grid. So, so, so selling the electricity from the car to the grid. So making the carrier battery a part of the electricity system, not under an experimental condition, but on a commercial base. It's a small project, maybe it will really work, maybe not, we hope so. And uh, and uh, we, uh, our aim is to demonstrate that this kind of model may be a part of the future business model in order to improve not only the quality of our cities through the, the diffusion of electric cars, but also the, the ability to manage a sophisticated uh, electricity grid. I think this is the direction. Again, the technology is there. Of course, we need some improvement, we need infrastructures, we need need better technology, we need a a cost reduction, but the technology again is there. And and the the change is going to happen not in 25 years, but in a few years.
0: Maybe When talking about electric vehicles, uh, I, I could ask around a bit what your kind of prognosis or gut feeling is about when will electric vehicles Become a consistent part of electricity demand because that might be important for for your company and other electricity companies, and there might be a risk kind of that we now kill all the power plants that we might need later on. Um, maybe Laszlo. Uh,
4: well, the 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 short answer is that the current power system is easily able to uh, supply uh, any conceivable level of electricity demand for electric cars. Okay, so. Uh, uh, last year if I take the wind and solar capacity coming online globally that was 200 times more electricity uh, than uh, the electricity consumption of the electric cars that were sold. So the, you know, this idea that electric cars will have to run on coal-fired electricity is, is I mean, just, just out of touch with the, with the reality. So, so with a bit of a simplification uh, the is uh, in our, our modeling the two-degree tra- transition, we have roughly 50 million electric cars in Europe by 2030. Now, that's around 100 times more than today, so that requires a very significant ramp-up. Uh, and I should emphasize that in every single country where electric cars today have a 1% or higher market share, there is roughly a, a 5,000 euro per car subsidy on them. Uh, and, and that is not going to be fiscally sustainable. One day, the finance ministers will lose their patience. So we are racing with time, the battery costs, battery costs are declining, the technology is improving, but the battery costs will have to come down fast enough uh, for the mass market penetration of electric cars before the finance ministers lose their patience. Uh, so this is, uh, this is a race uh, and I hope that we win this race. But if we have these uh, uh, 50 million electric cars, that will add uh, roughly 3% uh, of to, to the current European electricity consumption uh, by 2030. Uh, I mean, that's that's very, very easy to supply. Now, what is a much bigger issue, that from a system operation point of view, electric car charging can be either a fantastically valuable part of the solution or a very dangerous part of the problem, depending on how smartly uh, the, uh, the charging infrastructure is built up. And I have to say that, that last year there was already two billion dollars investment globally into electricity, electric car charging infrastructure, a lot of them in, in Europe. But the majority of the charging infrastructure which is being deployed does not have online conductivity. So consequently the owner of the car would have to get out of its bed two o'clock at night and switch it on manually uh, to, to charge with off-peak electricity. And I mean that's not going to happen. And that's—I mean, this is 2016. We should not build electric car charging stations without without integrating demand side response capability. There should be there should be a very clear regulatory standard that every single electric car charging network should provide demand side response to the power system. That's how we can make them part of the uh, part of the solution because their capacity need is much bigger than the energy need proportionally.
2: I would like to, to add one aspect on discussing the transport sector because currently we are just discussing replacing um, fuel-based petrol cars by electric cars, and I think the transport sector needs a, another vision or a more integrated concept. For example, we also have to think about um, um, new city concepts, um, transport in cities, cycling, pedestrian, public tra- transport, and so on. So we need new concepts for that and I think this is a good example so where in the transport sector we see it's not just replacing one technology with the other but we need new and integrated concepts and I think the, the same is true for um, the electricity system I mean you mentioned it before so we have smart concepts, we have smart homes um, and, and, and so also there are kind of opportunities uh, related to that um, thinking of transport in cities I mean everybody is is fed up with commuting and, and uh, there could be opportunities, also to show that uh, the transformation um, provides opportunities for uh, the normal people, let's say.
0: There are no comments on the, uh, on the panel. I would now like to, uh, to open the floor uh, to everybody, so uh, if you have comments or questions. Um, is there a microphone in the room? Please, shortly introduce yourself and keep the comment short.
5: Uh, Hello, Um, my name is Professor Linson from the amnrc NewPal Network. Um, Connie, my dear Connie, um, you mentioned this notion of act together. I think it is important to remember that there is a um, terrible world, existential and trust crisis. Citizens don't believe in institutions and policy makers anymore. Suspicion prevails, trust is lost. And without trust, any policy shall fail, whatever the political program, anywhere in the world. So to my mind, it is absolutely essential to overcome this prevailing suspicion and recover the citizens' trust and respect. And shortly, too, uh, regarding integration, yes, um, energy is... Uh, Energy transition is definitely a fact, but energy transition is related to other transitions. There are multiple world transitions that are interrelated. It is important to realize that we are faced with a global network of interconnected global challenges that can only be appropriately managed by first setting up a new global governance infrastructure. Thank you.
1: I'm not sure I understood the question, but I agree with your analysis that there is a trust problem, everyone can see that. But what I'm then talking about is to try to identify some... I mean, as long as we have democracy, I guess that we agree that we have somehow not to give up and say, okay, they don't believe in anything, people, so uh, we just give up. We have to sort of build that trust up again. And how do we do that? By identifying, I believe, some areas where people would say, there I see what Europe is all about. This makes sense to me as a citizen in 2016, by solving problems. And I think that most people, for instance, when it comes to our dependency on gas from Russia, for instance, many Europeans would say, I can see it makes sense to work together in order to try to bring down that dependency. I think east, west, north, south, many people could see that. I think that this weekend, when President Obama and President Xi Jinping together announced, now we are ratifying uh, the climate pact, I think that many Europeans thought, where is Europe? Why are we not ready to do this? Well, because our decision making process is slower. Uh, but I mean, to identify specific, tangible policy areas where at least part of our populations would say, ah, this makes sense, it's not an easy thing. But I'm not just ready to, to give up and said, okay, there's mistrust out there, let's, let's give up. I think the situation is, is so dangerous, and we need people to trust in institutions and some ka- ka- kind of political leaders in the dangerous times we are living in. So we have to identify areas where we could help rebuild, again, that trust.
5: This was the... Uh Thank you um, Mrs. Heidegger, you, you mentioned transport uh, building enge- energy efficiency and, and agriculture as the main challenges. Uh, what do you think and uh, I mean I, I'm asking to everyone what are the main challenges regarding agriculture uh, Is it uh, on, uh, mainly a problem for Europe or mainly for the rest of the world? Is there any connection with the common agricultural policy? Um, are the problem mainly technical or also political when speaking about agriculture? We take a second question as well? Thank you. Laurel Henning from MLEX. Um, I have two short questions, if I may. The first is um, directly to Laszlo. You highlighted national investment plans that you thought worked really well. I was just wondering if you could explain exactly why you think those specific plans work so well and why elaborate more on why the EU isn't one of those sort of five examples that you gave. Um, more widely to the panel, we haven't really touched that much on fossil fuel subsidies um, which was a topic at the G20 or sh- you know, was going to be p- perhaps an agreement on phasing them out this weekend at the G20 meeting. Um, that's a target that the G7 has but not the G20. Is that a failure on the G20's part and what's the impact of um, them not
1: having a target like the G7 have? Thank you. Thank you. First, on the, the agricultural part, I think that uh, obviously it's a global problem, but I think that we can actually and we have to do something about it also in, in Europe. And that is about sort of how we bring up uh, animals, how we feed them. It's about uh, cultivation practices, it's also about uh, land use and, and soil protection, how we store uh, in CO2 in, in, uh, in, in the soil there are really a lot of things that can be done already. Again, to take the point from my colleague up here before, if we just took the best practices already being identified in different places and scaled them up to the whole European Union, that alone would bring the sector a a very vast step towards sort of a more low-carbon practice. And at the European level, through the Common Agricultural Policy, we actually have a rather strong tool and a rather strong economic tool where we could set up some rules and practice and say, do this, do that, uh, or you will not have sort of your subsidies from the community. So it is possible to identify this. And the whole point is, if we're going low carbon by 2050, the sooner we start in the different sectors, the more gradual... We can get to where we need to be. Whereas, if we do not sort of start in the different sectors now, it would be a much more disruptive pathway we have to follow at, at a later stage, which would be much more difficult for those uh, involved in, in delivering it. Just on the fossil fuel subsidies, uh, I cannot count how many times G20 in different declarations over the years has mentioned that we should phase out fossil fuel subsidies, and it's good that it's, it's, it's still there. But what we need now is to start doing it. We, we often discuss so much the subsidies for renewables, but I think that the uh, IEA can, can confirm that it's still around four times as much that the world is spending on f- uh, subsidizing fossil fuels that we want less of than we are subsidizing renewables. So I really think that now we have to get into the sort of very specific strategy how to phase out fossil fuel subsidies. And nobody is talking about getting rid of them tomorrow because everybody knows that there is a huge social dimension here. But for instance in Europe, we are still directly and indirectly in different markets subsidizing fossil fuels. So we could start doing our homework there and, and, and get a strategy for how to get rid of it over say a five or ten years period.
4: Yes, uh, I think the, uh, on, the, on the question of the what, what, makes, uh, what makes the renewable uh, uh, policies of, let's say, Mexico or South Africa uh, so successful, I think it's a, a combination of two things. One is how do you find a balance uh, between uh, competitive incentives, uh, investment security, and the scalability of the process? It's—I mean—it's reasonably easy to design a renewable policy, which will attract a lot of investment, uh, so, but uh, very often at the price of losing uh, competitive efficiency incentives. So, so what I like in the South African or the Mexican cases is that they have—they uh, have a very clear, well-designed system of periodic auctions. Uh, you have a. You you have a proper visibility of the government uh, having a pathway of that I want uh, a certain level of capacity and I'm going to have an auction every year or every six months and you can prepare for that and I'm standardizing the products uh, uh, and I I enable uh, the setup of uh, of the support infrastructure. But I want competition, you will have to compete for every contract, you will have to win an auction. But after you won the auction, I will sign you a contract and there will be strong legal guarantees uh, that, uh, that, that will be bankable guarantees. I have to say that if I compare, let's say, the example of the, of the eurozone crisis. During the worst days of the Euro, eurozone crisis, even countries which were hit very, very badly uh, by the eurozone crisis, they respected the PPP contracts that were signed in the transportation infrastructure. So for an investor, investing in a toll highway in Spain or a PPP airport uh, in Italy uh, actually proved to be a quite uh, robust, quite good investment. The same countries uh, very often did some really unpleasant things to the energy investors. Uh, So so somehow the governments made a distinction and an energy investment was not regarded as as protected uh, as some other infrastructure investment whereas, the, whereas the, the legal guarantees for these uh, contracts are often very, very robust. And the other aspect is uh, the incorporation into the network aspects with the renewable investment, which is done in Mexico and also in Brazil. Most European countries pretend that they have a perfect renewable, uh, a perfect electricity network. Uh, most European countries don't have any locational signal uh, steering renewable investment. Now the reaction for that, very naturally, is that the investors will pick the most windy site in the Baltic coast of Germany and the most sunny site in southern Spain, uh, build their project there, and then they raise their hand and said that w- could, could somebody please build an electricity network uh, to make sure that we can deal with all the bottlenecks. Uh, the most valuable wind site is not where the wind is strongest, the most valuable wind site is where the wind is reasonable and the site is well-located for the electricity network. But I have to say that some of the key emerging countries, uh, and I would highlight there Mexico and Brazil, are doing a, a very intelligent work of incorporating the location network-specific aspects uh, uh, into their, their renewable policies. So I think that's a good thing. And on fossil fuel subsidies, uh, I, I'm, more, I'm more optimistic. I have to say that the, the over of majority of the fossil fuel subsidies are in the big oil producers and in some of the key emerging countries, uh, which are energy importers. And we actually see a quite respectable progress in both cases. I mean, India has done a subsidy reform for diesel fuel, for LPG, uh, for for natural gas, uh, which which was not easy at all for the India, India government to implement. Uh, Indonesia uh, done electricity pricing subsidy. I mean, we are talking about countries which have a combined population more than twice of Europe uh, with, with very large segments of the society in, in poverty. So there the governments were making a, a, a serious and very respectable political effort uh, to, to reform energy subsidies. And I have to say that I, I, I think history will judge that the, the current oil price decline was probably the best thing that could have happened to the big oil producers for, <laughs> for a long time, because it really got them out of their comfort zone, and some of the key oil producers are, are really thinking very hard of how to modernize their economic policy, how to reform uh, their, their subsidy schemes. Uh, so that's, that's also a benefit in my view. And again, there's a long journey still ahead, but, uh, but I think we should recognize that progress is being made. Mexico,
3: Brazil, uh, South Africa, um, probably we, we, we were the first investors in these three countries in the renewable. No, I agree, 100%. The reason why we are uh, bidding very low prices in these very competitive tenders are exactly what, what, uh, what Lazo just mentioned. Uh, the problem is how to bring this experience in Europe, which is a little bit complicated, because, I, again, beyond, beyond the difference in natural resources, that you may have less sand than in the desert and less wind than in, the, in some Brazil uh, uh, highlands, I think the major barrier to overcome again we go again to the point of energy union uh, is the fragmentation uh, and the complexity of the domestic mechanisms. We are uh, pretty much convinced that uh, that the 2030 targets should be uh, the great occasion for implementing a pan-european mechanism in order to promote new renewable investments. We believe that the last uh, step of this uh, of this journey should be, European tenders. Also in order to improve the dimension, the size of the project, size matters. Economy of scale is very important. One of the reasons why we have been able to lower the, the price of our, in our in our uh, tenders is that we may have global partnership with uh, large manufacturers, uh, whether it's General Electric in the, in the room or investors and, and, and so on, in order to to, to to offer the real very, very competitive uh, prices connected to a very efficient procurement process. So in order to do that we need, we need, we need a large, large industrial scale. I think that we have also to get rid a little bit of the ideological uh, vision that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that uh, renewables is, is a kind of democratization of energy sector. There is a part of that. Of course, we are, I'm not uh, discussing the value of the importance of distributed generation, but this is a part of the system. If you want to really drastically the cost of new projects, and then making more compatible ambitious targets with the uh, you know the, the economic acceptability for the continent. We uh, need uh, integrated,
0: very competitive, large-scale uh, tenders. I would have uh, two questions essentially to uh, uh, to the panel. Still, one is. Um, Following up on, uh, on what you just said about better coordinated solutions inside the EU, um, I think, coming from from Germany, um, the impression very often is, more European coordination means dilution of ambition. So essentially, the German government has been trying to uh, to, to keep its energy vendor at home also because it feared that if it discusses the whole thing on a european level it will dilute the ambition and in the end create more problems i see the same issue with for example international emission trading so everybody understands that more international emission trading is a is an interesting and very efficient instrument from an economic perspective but there is the risk that international trust is not there that we uh, don't have the institutions to work uh, together uh, in, a, in a meaningful way so that will dilute ambition so is there a trade off between efficiency and uh, and resilience there and and how should we uh, how should we kind of try to to find the right um, point there and the second question uh, um, for the for the end of the panel would be what is the largest risk you are seeing for not reaching the two degree target. So what is the single most important risk that uh, that you would identify? That, that you try to give an answer to your first question,
3: uh, which is very connected to my previous point. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, 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 the trust, putting together the efforts is, is a matter of trust, and you need trust between governments, you need trust between the regulators, between companies, between TSOs, and so on, and so forth. Uh, so, but there is a very good uh, case in which we may work on that. that, that that's, you know, the 2030 package uh, brings to the, uh, what in the Brussels Lang is defined, the what-if problem. So we have a European target for renewable, but it's not very clear which will be the tools to get to achieve this target if the, 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 the countries are not doing the homeworks. So, I believe that there are two possible solutions. No, there are no other solutions. No, solution number one is working with a stick, a stick being, uh, going back to the, previous, uh, to the previous model of domestic targets, then you know, negotiation, I get this target, you get this target, so, which is providing the, t- the typical carpet market uh, uh, in Brussels, in Brussels uh, style. A second possibility to, is to work with the carrot. I don't want to be too, 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 too cynical, but I think that money may be a very good way to overcome uh, uh, the lack of trust. I mean, if you provide uh, incentives, Incentive became a bad word because they were improperly used, but you utilize them in a proper way that's maybe a positive word. If you provide incentives to countries, uh, that incentive means maybe also European money. For example, European money coming from the ETS uh, after the ETS finally will be, will be will be reformed. And you give money, European money, to projects which are carried out after tenders uh, promoted by a certain number of countries, over national, and make a regional tender. That would be a very good example, a very good incentive for countries to put together efforts. Huh? And uh, I don't believe that uh, we are ready as a continent to, 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 have a, to have a common pot of money in order to promote wind in Denmark with the Greek money and vice versa. But I do believe that we sh- could start from regional good example, putting together maybe two or three countries, which are more ready than others, and this will become uh, I think a very effective engine because, uh, of course, you will have better projects, lower costs, larger scale, more efficiency, and uh, let's not forget that it's true that we uh, uh, we uh, we made a big effort in order to promote renewable in Europe, uh, and probably we didn't uh, we lost a little bit the part of the of the leadership in many in many areas, and for example in manufacturing. But this is not true in terms of, of European leadership on. Uh, energy players operating in renewable, In Mexico, in South Africa, in Brazil, companies winning the tenders are largely European companies. So, we have the, the ground to, 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 to follow this track.
1: To your first question, or a claim that more European policies, coordination means dilution. Take regulation of cars. Who was it who tried to dilute European legislation? was very much Germany, F- for good reasons, it's not a mystery, but it's just my point is, yes, sometimes it looks as if you get dilution if you do something at the European level, but the alternative is not necessarily that you have very, very strong national regulation. Uh, the alternative is a patchwork of regulations, but also where there would be some free riders and the, se- the pressure would not be as strong towards industry in order to sort of get the push that that we need to them. So, yes, there is a trade-off, but but I think all things being equal, and that relates to your last question, what is the biggest risk in all these things? the, The biggest risk is if we believe that we globally, or regionally in Europe, or nationally can make a transition as big as we need it in the field of climate and energy for decades to come without policies. If we think we can leave it only to the market, I think we hear it also for those who are acting in the market, we need also the policy signals. So the biggest danger as I see it, that is short-termism. Short-termism in decision-making at many different levels, That is the biggest challenge and the biggest risk here, because if we do sort of get stuck with that, we risk too many good investments and we risk lock-in. And that is why we need to understand that what we must do is to find the right balance between the markets and make the market dynamics work and the policies that is needed in order to send the long-term signals.
2: Okay, I uh, will continue. So, I, uh, I would like to come back to the Paris Agreement because um, the Paris Agreement, uh, some people also, or I- I- in the end, it's a mixture of bottom up and top down elements. So, some elements are really on the global level, and it had also um, has also um, bottom-up elements with the National Action Plans. So I think also in Europe we need more flexibility. And um, so perhaps we cannot expect that we all go together. I, I would agree with uh, what, what uh, you said before. So pr- probably we need some regional groups, we need also some bilateral agreements, and this is not always against Europe, but we need this in addition. We need different tests. Phases, for example, I mean Germany for example is in bilateral talks with Denmark or with Poland on, on renewable supporting schemes and I think this is not undermining the European idea but is in addition and I think we need this in, in the same way as the Paris Agreement has both kind of elements of top-down and, and bottom-up. In that sense, I think the biggest risk for the Paris, Paris Agreement or for the two degrees target is probably not technology. I think we can mainly use most of the technological questions, but it's more on effort-sharing. And uh, currently, this is my biggest fear. Um, I do not see much progress within Europe on effort-sharing, and so worldwide it's also a very tricky question. So my my plea would be to think in a new way about effort-sharing transfers between richer and poorer countries. Perhaps we are in a kind of cul-de-sac at the moment within Europe.
4: I mean, you, you know Germany much better than I do, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm again more optimistic because what I feel is uh, uh, whereas, let's say, three or four years ago, very often when I was in Germany talking to the German energy industry, I started my presentations emphasizing that Germany is actually not an island. Uh, 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 there is, uh, I think, in the past three or four years that I, I noticed a very, very positive shift Uh, in the the, the attitude of the German energy establishment in this respect. Uh, There is, 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 I think, a very strong recognition that Germany is not an island. Germany is the interconnected heart of the European energy system. Uh, Renewable production in Germany, wind and solar production fluctuates between around 1 and almost 40 gigawatts depending on weather patterns uh, with a 70 gigawatt peak demand. And the interconnection flow fluctuates uh, on the German border, on the borders of Germany, between minus 10 and plus 10. Uh, the, uh, and I think there is a, there is an increasing recognition in the German energy industry that without this interconnection flow, without the interconnections, interconnections providing flexibility from other countries, from Austrian hydropower, from pump storage hydro in the French mountains, and so on. Uh, even managing the current German wind and solar capacity would be incredibly difficult uh, so so Germany in the past two or three years has played a very positive and a very proactive role in all the all the regional coordination mechanisms uh, to integrate system operation to con- to coordinate uh, 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 the infrastructure developments to harmonize electricity market uh, and, and uh, balancing uh, frameworks now uh, there is a very, very large uh, synergy potential from the different weather patterns and the different demand patterns. France has a lot of electric heating, Germany doesn't. That leads to very different uh, demand patterns and, and, and it leads to a potentially much more efficient system if you properly integrate. One obstacle in my view is that uh, the full syner- if, you, if you work towards achieving this full synergy potential, Eventually, it will be impossible to maintain electricity security at the nation state level because the way you achieve the synergy potential is that you rely on capacities, you rely on flexibilities in other countries. And currently, I feel that most European governments have a very, very strong political desire to maintain maintain the ability to ensure electricity security uh, even if the border is completely closed. And that will lead to a very expensive duplication. So there we need a political breakthrough. I think for the biggest risk of decarbonization for achieving the two degrees target is is a mission accomplished mentality. That, uh, I mean, even with the current policy package, renewables are growing in Europe. Carbon dioxide emissions are declining in Europe. The same in the United States. Uh, The renewables are also strongly growing in China. I, I believe that soon Chinese carbon dioxide emissions will also start to decline. Um, so uh, there, are, there are many people there are many things on the agenda of a prime, Minister. you know the Islamic state, terrorism, refugees, unemployment and so on. So when you have a situation, when you, you go to the Prime Minister and you tell him that we need to, we need to increase renewables uh, and we need to cut carbon dioxide emissions, and he asks you that, so what, what we are doing well, renewables are increasing, carbon dioxide emissions are declining, good, problem solved, what about the refugees? Uh, the, uh, and, and of course, uh, uh, the, the speed of the transition really, really matters. I mean, if you want to stabilize the temperature, you have to eliminate carbon dioxide emissions, And how much carbon carbon you emit during this transition will determine at what level you stabilize the uh, the, the temperature. Uh, So I see see a clear risk of of moving towards a low carbon system, but moving so slowly that we end up stabilizing at a significantly higher level than 2 degrees. I, I see that as a credible risk.
0: Like now to uh, to close this extremely interesting session at this point I think we had a very exciting tour from the complexities of network uh, integration of renewables to global climate agreements so a very uh, very broad one and I think one conclusion from uh, from all of the speakers shines uh, shines clearly through that is we have the technology there technology seems not to be the problem we have the target there and now it's essentially up to prioritization of policymakers to, uh, to make the whole thing work, and uh, Bruegel will try to contribute in the future again to, to making good policy recommendations to, uh, to ease this process. Thank you very much for your attention.